You would respond with saying, Sabachnur. So, Sabachher. Okay. Salam alaikum. You would say, Wa alaikum salam. So, Salam alaikum. Good, good. I did, in Arabic, I just said, um, Good morning. Hello. And then if I was going to ask you how you're doing, I would say something like, Shlonich. So that's like, what's up? You know, there you go. That's about all I got. Y'all did good singing Spanish. I was, I was impressed. I really was impressed. Um, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. So if y'all want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, we'll start there. We'll leave that for a little while, and then we'll come back to it eventually. But, um... Why don't y'all go ahead and stand up, and I'll, um, I'm not going to read it because you'll see why. It says this, Delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your hearts. You may be seated. <laughs> yeah, I know, even bread can, can memorize something that short. So, um, but thank y'all for being here today. So, feel like there's a, a few questions that bridge the generation gap. Um, but even bigger than the generation gap, I, I feel like they probably span most of history. So they're questions like, what is my place in the world? Or what am I here for? What does God want from me? What is my purpose? How can I be happy? So, I understand that uh, my generation has asked these questions. I know college students are asking these questions. I have a feeling that if you were somewhere around my parents' age, you probably at some point asked a question like this. I don't think it matters if you grew up in church or if in your entire life you've never stepped foot into one. People are asking these types of questions. I, I believe a lost world is, is going to listen. If they're going to listen to what we have to say, first God's going to have to open up their hearts and their minds. He's going to have to move in their lives. He's going to have to draw them to himself. I also believe that we have to be, be ready to meet people where they are. We have to talk to them about more than just the weather or what's going on with their favorite sports team or whatever the local gossip might be. We have to talk to them about important things, deep things, things that really matter. If we don't have answers to questions like those, they won't listen to us. The world will, and it does have questions or answers to those types of questions. The answers, they may not be right, but at least they have them. If we can't give them answers and show them why ours are true, they won't listen. They won't care what we have to say. And the older I get and the more I try to follow Jesus and try to follow what the Bible teaches, the more I see that the unbelieving world thinks we are crazy. For example, we did something this morning that nowhere else in life do you do these things. Zero places. You came in and you sat down and you might 
but probably did not talk to the people that are right around you. So like you go to a basketball game, you talk to the people that are right around you sitting down, right? Even if you don't know them, you probably talk to them. So you sat down and you, talk, you didn't really talk to the people right around you. And then there was some orchestra music. And then y'all stood up and we sang together. And then you sat down and then you listened to me talk. And then you stood up and you sang some more. And then you sang in another language. And then you sang in your heart language. And then you sat down again. And now I'm here. And you're going to listen to me. I mean, really, you're going to listen to me for generally as long as I'm willing to stand up here and talk. Nowhere else in the world do we do these things. And when they see it, they have no context for it. And they, they don't understand it. They think we're crazy. And that's just the surface. If you start telling people what you believe, God told this guy that there was going to be this big storm, and it was going to do something that it had, it had never done before. It was going to rain. And that God was going to bring one or two of each kind of animal, male and female, he was going to lead them onto this boat, and they were going to stay on this boat for a really long time while the earth flooded. You, it, you go to a, a world that didn't grow up in church, <laughs> they got no idea what you're talking about. They may have heard, like, bits and pieces, but they don't believe it's true. Church, that, that's not even the, the craziest stories that we could come up with. Uh, one guy, he didn't die. God took him up in a chariot into heaven. All right. Fred, you're right. People think we're crazy. Matt agrees with me. I wanted to know what the world out there, what, what, what they would answer to questions like these. So, as a good millennial... Wanting to know an answer to an important question, I, I did what all millennials would do. I googled. And it was, man, it was real high thought what I googled. What do people want out of life? And you know what? I'm not the only one. There were billions of results. So naturally, like a good millennial would, would do, I wanted a list. I didn't want it to be too dense. I didn't want it to take too much effort. And luckily, I'm not the only one out there like that. So I found several. Started looking through them, scrolling through them. Started noticing some patterns. People wanted to be happy. They didn't want to have to worry. They wanted some kind of purpose something to live for. Just, just over four months ago, Forbes, they asked a question. They put out a poll. If you could say in one word what you want more of in life, what would that be? So the answers that they received were basically almost exactly what I thought they were going to be. Happiness, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, and then with each response, if you would scroll down a little further, and it, this caught my attention, they, uh, they would give some kind of short explanation, or someone would write a little bit more to, to tell them what was the biggest challenge in gaining those things that you want. 
So the first one was happiness. Happiness has become so hard to achieve, even harder to maintain. Continually it escapes because we don't understand exactly what ma will make us happy. We don't know ourselves at all. We look for it in a job, in a spouse, in a family, in a title, in a paycheck, in a fancy house. Happiness is out of our control. And it's a perpetual moving target that never stands still long enough for us to grasp. Money. One person asked a question, how much money do you really need to bring about the life experiences that will truly fulfill you? I know with people with more than a million in their accounts, yet they live in a constant state of fear and never have a moment of peace and can't enjoy spending on anything. As for peace, the top response they gave was, I have such a lack of clarity about who I am and my purpose. Now, I, I know probably no one in here responded to the Forbes poll, but I don't think that many of us are that far away from those same answers. I obviously only know what I know, and I, I know that there's a lot of people who have way more experience in the world and what life looks like and how it works than I do. But I, I feel like I'm getting older, and I, I know that, that 34, it really isn't that old. Thank you. No one said anything in the first service, and I just knew that there was going to be some young people in here and be like, you're old. And then somebody amen at 34 is not that old. Man, feel good. But, <laughs> but church, I, I recognize I still have a lot to learn. But I also don't, don't think that people change that much. Generally, people, they want the same kinds of things. And don't get me wrong, there, there is a massive generation gap between where kids are today and when I grew up, like when I was a kid and growing up. Like, I, I see that. But I also know that there's a massive gap between when I was a kid and when my parents were like my age. Because I know it, because my parents would be, they'd look at me, and my mom would be like, she's sitting right over there, she'd be like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, I don't know. But the same types of questions, and even with all of those things, people really, they don't change a whole lot. I know that we're all created to have desires, to want good things, to want to be fulfilled, to want answers to these types of questions. Ultimately, any joy that we find outside of God and Jesus is going to be incomplete. It's going to leave us wanting. It'll leave us wanting more. It'll leave us wanting something else completely. We think we dive in headfirst into something that it'll satisfy, but then when we get to the end, we either don't feel like we're as satisfied as we had hoped or anticipated that we might be, or we decided that we were mistaken all along, and we really want something else, this other thing instead. But I, I really, truly believe God wants us to be happy. Otherwise, why would He create us in such a way that we would have desires at all? He knows that any happiness that is in anything other than Himself will ultimately be empty, and unsatisfying. The Bible has 
and it always will speak to everything we need. It guides us, it directs us in everything. No, it doesn't speak to every specific little detail, but it doesn't need to. The specific problems that we have are almost always, and I really, I really, church, I want to say they always, every single time, but I can't. So I'm going to say nearly, almost always, but, I, but really, every single time. The Bible answers our specific problem. I feel like I can say this with confidence because any problem that we have comes down to an issue of my heart. If I have a problem, it is in my heart. Our problems are sin problems. Our issues are sin issues. It's either my sin or it's someone else's sin, but really it's probably some combination of those two things. Problems like that, those span generations. So the, the Bible answers those questions. Recently, I, I was reading through Ecclesiastes, and then this past week I was, I was thinking about these answers to, to that Forbes list, and it, man, it was just like right there. I remember Solomon asking some similar questions. How can I find peace? What do I have to do to be fulfilled? You know the conclusion that he came to? A guy with more wealth than he could ever need, with all the resources to try anything and everything that he thought might bring him peace, that he thought might fulfill him, a guy that could and would try anything and everything that he thought would give him the answer that would satisfy over 30 times in just 12 chapters, he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. We don't really use the word vanity a whole lot. So a tra translation that I think we would all without a doubt comprehend that we would understand. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Pleasure, Laughter, wine, meaningless. Seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness, meaningless. Building huge homes and gardens, meaningless. Having more business, meaningless. Gold and silver and treasure, meaningless. Entertainment, meaningless. Wives and not wives, Meaningless. He says in Ecclesiastes 2, 10 and 11, Anything I wanted I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, all of it was meaningless. Wow, Brad, that is depressing. And you're right, it is. What a terrible feeling. I don't have the same opportunities that Solomon had to indulge myself or dive headfirst into anything that I thought might bring my, like, satisfaction. But I, I have tried several of them. I'll tell you the things that I've experienced, even if they were enjoyable just for a moment, or even good for, for a while. At some point, maybe for some things it was after it was over, for others it was like in the midst of it. But at some point I came to the same conclusion. 
this is not it. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. I want something else. I want something better. And even if I felt satisfied for a moment, I knew at some point I would need it again. So I can identify with Solomon. Meaningless. So as depressing as it seems, Solomon at the end, he does offer a conclusion. Ecclesiastes 12. That's the whole story, he says. Now I, here's now my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. Solomon's conclusion is first, to fear God, and second, to obey his commands. Yes, in the end, there will be a judgment, and God will make all things right, but overall, the tone isn't what I would like call uplifting. <laughs> while, while it's not uplifting, I, I do believe that Solomon's conclusion is key to him finding joy. All of his pursuits to be fulfilled in something other than God, he recognizes they're foolish. So he's knocked a bunch of stuff out. Any hope he had in worldly pursuits, they're gone. Glorifying God will provide the only lasting meaning in life. Solomon discovered thousands of years ago what people still struggle with today. He found where he wouldn't find the answer. He found where he wouldn't find fulfillment. He found where he wouldn't find joy and happiness and peace. And somewhere along the way, though, David understood some of these, these things. His dad, he understood. And for some reason, they didn't get passed on. Now, maybe Solomon heard him, and he just didn't get it. Maybe he didn't hear it. But what we know is that Solomon looked in everything and everywhere he could possibly look, trying to understand how he would be fill in the blank with whatever emotion you think, think might be good here, satisfied, fulfilled, happy, peaceful, whatever. We really could, and I think lots of people do, try to be content with the first thing that satisfies. Church, we are far too easily pleased. But if we settle, we're selling ourselves short of something, not just, not that it would just be okay, not, it wouldn't just be good, not even great. We're selling ourselves short of something that's truly amazing and miraculous. C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What did David know about the answers to those types of questions? Well, God gives us the answers in Psalms. David, he had the answers. He knew. It's all throughout Psalms. Stick with me. There's going to be like 10 of them. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalms 9, 2, I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. Psalm 16, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Psalms 19, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. 
The commandments of the Lord are clear, giving insight for the living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. Psalms 30. You have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever. Psalms 32. Ooh. Psalms 32. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All you who obey him, shout for, the, for joy. All you whose hearts are pure. Finally, the one that my sermon's about today, but church, I could give you 50 more just like this, just in the Psalms. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if we're going to delight in God, I think it's pretty important to try and understand him, to try and know him, to know what's important to him. And if we're going to delight in the Lord, I don't think it's a very big jump to try and understand God's purpose for himself and for people. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. These two texts, they teach us that God has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. Whatever makes him happy. This church, this is what it means to say that God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, he can do anything he pleases, and then none of his purposes can be frustrated. God continues to reveal these truths about himself to David. Psalm 33, starting in verse 9. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. If none of his purposes can be frustrated, then God must be the happiest of all beings. This infinite divine happiness, it's the fountain of which every Jesus follower should drink and long to drink more deeply. Our delight in God is the fuel for our desires. It's the fuel that won't burn out. And, and is it crazy to think that this is, this is part of the living water that Jesus was talking about? So he, he sits down with the Samaritan woman. She wanted something. She, she kept trying to fill it with things. She tried to fill it with all these things that she thought would satisfy her, that would fulfill her, but she was always left wanting something more, something different. Jesus offers her a way to be eternally satisfied. So far, we know that, that God is absolutely sovereign over the world, that he can therefore do anything he pleases. He's not just, he's not a frustrated God, but he's a deeply happy God, and he rejoices in all of his works. God's ultimate goal is to preserve and display his infinite and awesome worth. His purpose for all of creation is to display his own glory. 
And if God's purposes cannot be frustrated, if they can't be defeated, and he can offer a satisfaction that's eternal, then we know the answers to some of our questions. We know that it's, it's at least possible to be satisfied. And we know where to get it. We don't know how to get it yet, but we know where it is. Jesus told his disciples, um, and I, I do believe he's telling us the same thing today. In John chapter 15, he starts in verse 8, he says, When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in His love. I have told you these things so that, church, hear this. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy, it will overflow. When we obey Jesus and His commandments like Jesus obeyed the Father's commandments, we will be filled with joy, and that joy overflows. The joy that overflows... When we obey the Lord, when we delight in the Lord, that is all satisfying. That is fulfilling delight. That's the reward that everyone is really looking for. The thing that for all time people have been trying to complete. When our joy overflows, when our delight is so full that it spills over, praise is what tells the world of our great God who deserves all glory and honor and praise and worship. I might even argue that until we're so full of this joy and delight in the Lord, until it overflows in worship, that it is incomplete. And when God finally hands the Philistines over into the hand of Israel, when, when they finally recapture the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back into Jerusalem, David is so full of joy and delight that he leaps and he dances before the Lord. Now, I'm not going to leap and I'm not going to dance because I'm scared. And I know that we as, as Baptists, that can make us a little uncomfortable. But sometimes it's hard to describe those things. It's a whole lot easier to see him. I, I, maybe I will do it a little bit. He said, yeah! Like, I, I could just, uh, he's marching through the streets of Jerusalem and he's so full of joy that he's jumping around like a kid. How beautiful is that? The king... He recognizes God's glory, and he recognizes what that means to have the ark back. He recognizes that God is with them, and he's so full. It leads him into worship. In church, he didn't even have the Holy Spirit like we have it today. How much more should our joy and delight be made full? We've been taken from death into life. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Our worship should be a reflection back to God of His glory and His worth. If the heavens are willing to cry out and praise God when somebody gets saved, we should too. The end goal of everything we do and everything we say should be to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The end goal of everything we do and say, everything, should be to glorify God by enjoying him forever. When our joy and, and our delight in the Lord overflow, it should show through not in only how we 
love and delight in God, but also how we love people. So, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians that the church in Macedonia was tested by many troubles, and when they were very poor, um, they were also filled with abundant joy, which overflowed into rich generosity. The way that Paul describes the affliction the church at Macedonia was enduring, it would be like me taking a grape and putting it right here on the stage and stomping on it and it gushing out of its sides. The persecution that they were feeling because of their faith in Jesus as the Christ and their poverty, that's the kind of weight that they felt. That's the affliction that they felt. But even with all of this, their joy was overflowing into rich generosity. Our overflowing joy should result in loving God and loving people. When our joy and delight in the Lord overflow, it should cause us to join in suffering with other people. Church, I, I believe with everything that I am that there are people in here that feel like their world is crumbling. I believe there are families in here that have no idea what's next. That's depressing. But our joy should result us in joining in their suffering, to walk with them. When our joy and delight in the Lord overflow, it should cause us to be full of grace for people, both believers and non-believers, and it should move us to forgiveness. We go into the holiday season. I know that family can be hard. Uh, especially like that, that next extended family. They can just rub us the wrong way. Church, forgiveness. Full of forgiveness. Um, bread, when you're driving and that person cuts you off. Full of forgiveness. When our joy and delight in the Lord overflow, it should cause us to long to know God more through the reading and the studying of His Word. When our lives get hard, when it feels like the world is crumbling, the Word is the truth that will bring us back to the Father. How else can we sustain our joy in the darkest hours except by the promises of God's Word? That He will work all things together for His glory and then our good. Satan's number one objective is to destroy our faith. Church, we have one offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But we can't draw the sword if we aren't wearing it. But if we do wear it, if it lives within us, if we hide it down deep in our hearts, what mighty warriors we can be. 1 John 2 says, I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts. You have won your battle against the evil one. When our joy and delight in the Lord overflow, it should cause us to pursue the glory of God in prayer. Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. 
Remember the woman at the well? Jesus said, if you knew who I was, if you knew what I have, you would ask for it, but you don't know. John Piper said, a prayerless Christian is, is like a bus driver trying to push a bus out of a rut because he doesn't know Clark Kent is on board. A prayerless Christian is like having your room wallpapered with Saks Fifth Avenue gift certificates, but you're always shopping at Goodwill because you can't read. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, you would ask. When our joy and delight in the Lord overflow, it should cause us, husbands, to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It would cause us to become a servant and not a boss. It would cause us to feel the greater responsibility to lead our families in a life of prayer, studying of God's word, and in worship. Husbands, you are the worship leaders in your family. You set the tone. And finally, when our joy and delight in the Lord overflow, it should cause us to be ambassadors for Christ. Lottie Moon said, Surely there can be no greater joy than that of saving souls. For us, what's at stake in missions are souls. People will be born and people will die, but God has given us the task of giving them the good news about a God who loves them and wants them to experience salvation. That comes only by the free gift of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. People and their souls and their eternity are at stake. We must take a personal responsibility to take it to them. We must take a personal responsibility for reaching the billions who are unreached. Church, I would ask you this question. Are you willing to reorder your life for these things? Are you willing to say, you know what? My priorities, they're not right. The things that we're doing, they need to be different. Our overflowing joy should result in these things. So missions, so who are these four billion people? Where do they live? Where are they at? Well, here's a map for you. The green areas, they have a completely established native church. They come up with their own songs. They, do their, they have their own method of having church. All the things. that They are established. They don't need any help. Well, they don't need all the help. The yellow areas, you see them through like Europe, moving kind of um, up into Russia and across Siberia, into Asia a little bit. There's some, there's some believers there. They're starting. Think about it like this, church. Think about it like, remember when you were learning how to ride a bike and you were, you were up and you were standing up and that pedal was up and you were going to push that pedal off and so you could start going? It's not the first one that's so hard. The second one, that, that's where these yellow churches are. When it's a little bit easier, we're starting to get it. We're starting to come together. We're starting to write our own songs. We have the Bible in our own language. There are some native believers who can share in their heart language. And the red, completely unreached. There is no one to share in their own heart language. And church, I don't care how good your second language is, it will never match your heart language. There are no native believers. They are struggling. 
No is a strong word. There's less than 1%. You couldn't hardly find one if you wanted because most of them are hiding it because they're scared they're going to die. Take note of where those places are. The missions world would call that the 1040 window, latitude, longitude, 1040 window. Most of those countries, they're either Muslim, Hindu, Buddhists, or atheists. Here's another one for you. Unreached people groups by country size proportionate to their unreached population. Okay? So, uh, the bigger the country, the more red the country, the more unreached they are. I have a laser pointer, and I've never gotten to use it, and I'm super excited about it today. Right here is the USA. Real small, not super red. Church, we are, we are the people that will take it there. We don't need that much help. The bigger the country on here, the more help they need. I don't know if you noticed this big red blob that says India on it, but there are a billion Hindus and Buddhists there that worship and serve a God that cannot save them. A billion. There are a billion people there. We couldn't, like, we couldn't see, we couldn't even begin to fathom how many people that is. Church, it is our task. It is my task. It is your task to take the gospel to these people. Our country is bright green. If there was a, a color on there that could be more than bright green, church, America would be it. It is our duty to go to these places and to share the gospel so that they have a chance, so that they just have a chance. Because right now, there's no one sharing with them. Zero people. There are people that have never even considered the gospel because they've never heard it. I said earlier that we are better together as Southern Baptists because I truly, truly believe it. That we, we can look at these maps. Let me go back one. We can look at this map and we can say, all right, these red spots, church, we go there. So if you're retired, you, for the first time in your life in probably 30 years, you have some freedom that you haven't had. You can go to these places. If you're retired for the first time, you probably don't have a mortgage, your kids are out of the house, you may have a little bit of spending money, you have enough energy to still do some things. If you'd like to go for two weeks or two years or 20 years, church, I will, I will go there with you. I'm not going to stay with you necessarily, but I will go there with you. I would love to. If some 80-year-old man walks up to me this afternoon and says, hey, Brad, I'd like to go to Saudi Arabia. Let's book a ticket. I'm in. Sign me up. It's red. All right, so retired people. Okay, what about you people with your family still? Man, Brad, you know, it'd be real nice, but we can't, we just can't go. I mean, the IMB says our kids are too old. Once your kids hit 12 years old, until they graduate, they are too old. Well, you know, we have, we had 26 short-term trips this year that we tried to take. 
26 of them. About, I think 10 of them were international. I got 10 opportunities coming for you in 2024. Affordable. Oh, I promise it's affordable. You try to book a vacation anywhere, I can beat it. Flights, food, beginning to end, we make it happen around here. And I got a bunch of people that can't go, like they are physically unable to go, but I promise you they will give towards your trip if you think that money is going to stop you. Do not let money stop you. Do not. I would, I'd be more mad about that. Man. Ten opportunities come in 2024 for you. Go with me. Go with Kent. Go with Danny. Go with Nate. Go with us. Join us in this. All right? Young, married, no kids. Young, single, kids or no kids. You can go. College students, when they, when they graduate, they have the most freedom that they will ever have in their entire lives. They're no longer under the authority of their parents. School can be affordable, especially if you're willing to work during that time. College students are the most strategic group on the planet for the sake of the gospel. I left two college girls in the Middle East for mm, seven weeks not too, too long ago, and you know what? They did great. I left them with a whole team of people that cared for them, made sure they were safe. I'll take your college students and I'll leave them somewhere for seven weeks. And boy, I'm going to shout and jump for joy. I'm going to you're going to be like, Brett, that's not very Baptist of you. Families with young children. Brett, our kids are too young to be going to those places. Church, no, they're not. That's a lie. That's a lie. They're not too young. We haven't prepared them yet. It's my job. It's your job to do that. Brett, I just don't, I don't feel comfortable taking my kids overseas it's really expensive if we want to take four people. All right, deal. I, I get that. Well, come spring break, I'm going to San Diego, and for about $400, you can spend the week there doing missions. You can't, I, I promise you, you can't go on a, a week-long vacation anywhere for $400. You know why? Because our church gives, and our church works really hard with special people to make these trips affordable. It makes them tangible. You can grab them. You can get them. They're not out of reach. Church, four billion people dying and going to hell, and they never had a shot. And that's not fair. And we can do something about it. We, you and me, we can join together, us, millions of other Baptists, and do this thing. More people believe that we are in the end times than ever before. Every tribe, tongue, and nation has to hear. They're getting knocked off the list. But church, I don't, I don't want it to end yet because there's so many lost people still. Let, let's go together and let's do this. This holiday season, think about them. Pray for them. These maps are from a, uh, uh, something called the Joshua Project, and there's a hundred more. Join us in this, church. Let's end our worship service today.